Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. To be on the front lines of the battle of ideas is no easy task when you're on the side of the oppressed against a tsunami of propaganda and lawfare. Nowhere is this more true than inside the struggle for justice in Palestine, where academia has long been a battleground for Israel's supporters. For decades, anti-Palestinian fanatics have used their superior resources to harass and attack professors and students who dare to speak out against Israeli apartheid, going after their reputations and livelihoods through media smears and legal assaults. This is meant to make an example, to scare others away from speaking out, to discipline activists, and to shut down even the smallest attempts to hold Israel accountable. Those who lead the effort for Palestine, driven by compassion, bravery, and justice, do so at great personal risk and rarely place themselves at the center of the story. So why is it so important that we document and understand such attacks on academic freedom? How does it fit into the context of Zionism and imperialism? What's the role of imperial feminism and Islamophobia in hegemonic narratives? And how does it relate to what's happening on the ground in Palestine, from Gaza to Janine? Joining me to discuss this and more is distinguished professor Rabab Abdulhadi, the founding director and senior scholar of the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies Program at San Francisco State University and head of the Oral History Project, Teaching Palestine. She's been at the forefront of Middle East studies as a teacher, mentor, academic, and activist, pioneering a revolutionary approach despite the relentless attacks on her and those she works with. She's not only persevered, but she's actually won, while significantly contributing to the most important areas of Middle East study, crafting concepts about imperial feminism, while challenging the dominance of professional so-called experts in the global north on colonialism, which should be understood through lived experiences of indigenous people who are resisting it, and all while facing nonstop legal assault, threats, and censorship. But before we jump into it with Rabab, this is just the first half of this episode. The second half is available for Breakthrough News members only. You can become a member at patreon.com slash Breakthrough News. Rabab, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Rania. It's uh, really a pleasure to be on the show and to be in conversation with you as well. Well, that coming from you, that is like the biggest compliment I could possibly get. And there's so much to talk about, but I guess a good place to start is you just got back from this incredibly busy tour in England. Um, I don't know where you find the energy, but it's incredible. Uh, you participated in many different events. And of course, England is the place responsible in so many ways for the creation of Palestine. So I guess it's a great place to be for some of the events you were involved in. So why don't you give our viewers an idea of the importance of this particular tour, what it was focused on, and how it relates to the current situation we've been seeing play out in Janine. Yes, uh, uh, thank you so much, Rania. Uh, definitely, definitely, uh, the Britain has been very much responsible for the colonialism of most of the world and the destruction of people around the world in Palestine, in India, and in, in the Turtle Island, which we, uh, which now is called uh, the U.S. and uh, and the the, col the colonization and the slavery and basically ripping of people. So uh, this tour uh, began with an invitation from uh, my good friend, you may know her, uh, Hassan Nasr al-Din, who's a documentary, Palestinian documentary filmmaker, who's studying the, the early Palestinian women's history 
um, um, since uh, British colonialism, actually documenting it and so on. And she is involved with a, a group of people in uh, Nottingham University as well as what they call Midlands Four Cities. And they, or, they organized together a conference called If I Dare to be Powerful, which is a quote from the late uh, may she rest in power, Audrey Lord, who is actually Caribbean. Uh, some people say black, African American. She she is African American if we think about the Americas, not just the U.S. as American. And she has been writing. She I I teach her work in every class I have. In every single class, I always start by assigning students a very short essay that's called "The Master's Tools Will Not Destroy the Master's House." And it's basically a study in questions of repression and resistance, hegemony, anti-colonial uh, uh, resistance, and so on and so forth. So that I was invited to uh, to be one of the keynotes uh, of this conference. And it was very important for me because I also went to the same school as Audrey Lord. I went, my, my undergrad, Alma Mater, Hunter College, was the same as hers. I was also honored to be invited to be an, an instructor at Hunter College like her. Uh, I continue and maintain my uh, my uh, undergraduate uh, degrees uh, less than my graduate at Yale University because Hunter College is like has always been known as a school for the people. And now the main street is named after her, which is the crossing where you stop at the under subway station to go to Hunter College. So then there is a lot of other connections, for example, example, one of her books is called Zami, a different spelling of my name. Uh, I actually changed my name from Rabab Abdel Hadi to Rabab Hadi um, uh, during my, all my years of activism because I didn't really want people, I didn't, as you, you know, I didn't want people to kind of like uh, connect me specifically and say pin me and, and define me according to uh, maybe the social uh, structure of Palestine and so on. Mm -hmm. I, re I re retained my name after I went to school because also officially you have to. And I also, um, that's that's what another discussion of the biography. <laughs> Can I just say one thing that's so, that's, yeah. that's so funny about that? I actually, my, my full last name is Abdul Khalik. So it's like I totally, I totally know where you're coming from with that. But go ahead. So that, that was that was that was one of that one of the issues. So anyway, I, I spoke about that. I connected what she did into to to Palestine and to my project of teaching Palestine and how do I understand the uh, concept. One of the concepts we're doing in teaching Palestine, the living archives, because she was a living archive. She was, and her relationships were amazing. She was building solidarities with so many communities. She, she discussed the question of difference, not erasing it, but to think about how do we negotiate towards justice. And this is one of the, the things that I advocate for, and I'm part of the movement for advocating for the indivisibility of justice. So that was, that was like really amazing. And for, from that, several other uh, invitations came up. The Palestine Solidarity Campaign in Sheffield, which is one of the longest activist uh, chapters of Palestine Solidarity Campaign. And Sheffield itself is a city that is has had probably maybe 30% of the population, uh, South Asian, Pakistanis. Uh, there is There are Yemenis there. Uh, there are people working. It's a formerly working class English city that has been completely destroyed by deindustrialization and, and uh, neoliberalism. And uh, so there is a lot of activists. There are There is a very active Palestinian group led by um, a man named Mushir Al-Farra, who's from Gaza who is, has been long, long time activist. And uh, he and his known sister, Dr. Mun Al-Farra, have written and spoken about losing 11 members of their family uh, to the Israeli bombing in 2014, to the Israeli massacre. 
very, very moving, very active, lovely man, amazing discussion with people. And I spoke on U.S. empire, uh, Islamophobia and Palestine and connecting them with each other. It was something to think about what, how the histories of the U.S. as a settler colony, uh, Britain as a, uh, probably the most advanced advocate of colonialism. I mean, uh, Spain comes and competes with it as well. And then, of course, there is France, Belgium and all the European powers, what they've done to, like, let's say what we say, the third world, Africa, Asia and Latin America, including our own uh, lands and countries. And uh, so and then it was at the same time as uh, uh, Brit British monarchy was celebrating, quote, unquote, something called Windrush, 75th anniversary of Windrush. We're talking about the 75th anniversary of Nakba of mm -hmm. Palestinian Nakba, when Palestinians, and uh, you know, maybe for some of you viewers who do not know, when three quarter of a million Palestinians were completely uprooted and displaced from their land in Palestine to 59 refugee camps around the region and in, in uh, Arab countries in, in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, as well as in the West Bank and Gaza, the, the two parts that were not occupied in 1948 and were later occupied in 1967. And uh, uh, so this was, so I, I, would, I, I talked about the connecting the things together. And this Windrush was very interesting because it also reminded me, and I do a lot of comparative history, it reminded me a lot of some of the stuff in U.S. history. So there is the, this, this uh, the, the, the official story, the official narrative, let's say the master hegemonic narrative, says that uh, um, uh, Britain called on uh, folks from the Caribbean, mostly from Jamaica and other British Caribbean places to go to England to seek jobs. And they, they wanted to go and, uh, to seek jobs and so on. But then they don't speak about the ways in which uh, England put back most of the people and deported them to, uh, to uh, Jamaica and the Caribbean under the pretext of quote-unquote illnesses and disease, which, of course, if we read Foucault and Madness and Civilization, we know this is, this is a very strong reminder, but also a reminder in U.S. history of when the U.S. Uh, brought many Mexicans to Detroit to work in the auto factories. And then when when the, the economy, uh, what, when there was the recession in the United States, what they did is they, they called them repatriation of Mexicans to Mexico, but actually it was deportation. And when I was in, in Michigan, I directed the Center for Arab American Studies. I used to work with a lot of Com comrades, colleagues in uh, Mexico town and um, Elena Herada and uh, and others whose actual parts of members of their family were deported. Of course, there is a there is an alternative discourse that's actually contesting uh, from by by black and Africans in in England and throughout the world who are contesting this and saying don't celebrate and just say that you've done us a great favor. And uh, it always reminds me of the T-shirt that uh, the students wear around. And I think one of my colleagues actually wrote about it in one of his papers saying, we are here because you were there. We are here mm -hmm. in the heart of the empire, in the belly of the beast, because you were there. This is what happens with the question of immigration. So that was very, very, for me, it was actually um, a, a reason to start thinking about more about comparative studies. And then I went to Metropolitan, uh, uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, and I was invited to give uh, the um, annual Tom Herendale uh, lecture, which was on the 20th anniversary of his assassination killing by an Israeli uh, military uh, man in 2003. He was killed and he was shot on April 4th as part of the international solidarity movement in Palestine. 
many people in the U.S., for example, know about Rachel Corey, and he belonged to the same movement. He was a young man photographer, went to uh, the region to Amman to actually uh, support people in Iraq against the sanctions to do photographs and so on. And then he couldn't go to Iraq. He donated, I think, 500 pounds, the remaining money, and joined the International Solidarity Movement and went and he was killed because he was acting as a human shield for uh, children in Gaza. And so this is this was the lecture. And basically, I argued in the the lecture that uh, Tom Herendale is a real Palestinian martyr. That martyrdom is not limited to people who are born as Palestinian. Palestine actually has is known. Palestinian movement is known to have many people from all over the world who have come and fought with the Palestinian. And it's also not a new phenomenon for Palestine because we think about Che Guevara in Cuba and Bolivia. Mm-hmm. We think about many people who went from many places to fight in the Spanish Civil War along the partisans against Franco's fascism. Uh, we think about uh, uh, people, uh, Cubans going in, in Angola. I mean, we think about people joining the uh, South African, the ANC, actually one of the main leaders, fighters of the ANC, who was uh, based outside of the ANC. His nickname was Ya Habibi. And the reason they call him Ya Habibi, apparently because he was training with a lot of Palestinians and they kept calling him Ya Habibi, Ya Habibi. So this became his nom de guerre, which is it's something that people don't really know. And you see a little word and then, and, 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 and the story was written by this anti-Zionist uh, Jewish member of Umkuntu Aziz with Spears of the Nation, which is the arm wing of the ANC, uh, Jeff Klein, and uh, in collaboration with Roni Kasriels, who's a very close comrade and a uh, friend of ours. And then I ended in London with uh, a, a talk, a meeting with the Palestinian youth movement on uh, rising for Palestine in the diaspora, which was quite exciting. And so was meeting all these young people and seeing uh, the, the the potential for the future uh, leadership of Palestine. I mean, thus defeating the Zionist narrative that the old will die and the young will forget. I mean, obviously the young actually not only not forgetting, but digging through the collective uh, memories and and uh, erasing colonial discourses, and then um, I had them. I was um, uh, had a chance, honored to sit with Dr. Sui Ang, who has dedicated her life to Palestinian um, struggle. Has uh, was there in Sabra and Shatila during the massacre. Worked in Gaza Hospital. Go, goes back again and again, and also continues participating. She's actually now uh, well, and she's back training surgeons. She's a surgeon. She said, I need to go there seven o'clock in the morning. I have to be a training. And she is now very much involved in a flotilla, a new flotilla together called Hamdala. Wow. She had just come back discussing the Scottish Palestine solidarity campaign. And then finally, I was uh, really privileged to meet with uh, a number of Iraqi and Palestinian uh, feminists, activists, uh, real uh, scholars and organic intellectuals such as Haifa Sangana, Jihan Al-Hilu, Sana Amhadis, many other people who came together to um, meet and we discussed about the whole question of the what happened with the with the Iraqi sanctions, what happened with the U.S. invasion, how can we work with each other, how can we study and engage with each other. So it was, and an, I, I should say that my sister, uh, Reem, who lives in London, actually played also a big role, she and Mahasan and uh, Mushir, in organizing and working on this together. So I, I, feel, I feel so privileged to have been able to, A, speak and advocate and talk about what's going on in Palestine, connect the history, the past with the present, uh, to inform the future, 
and provide critical analysis, connect with different movements and people and so on, and just hear and meet amazing, amazing people throughout. I don't think we even have enough time to go through mm-hmm. all the details, but it was it was just amazing, amazing. I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And I'm no, I mean that sounds incredible. And I think that that this is just for those who are watching, um, you're, this is like a small, tiny little piece, like a penny in the bucket of the amount of work that you've been involved with, not just on the issue of Palestine, but you referenced so many other connected issues, um, not just, you know, talking about academia, also so much activism. And so it's a good segue into another thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is the attacks that you've had to face, which have been so unbelievably vicious and racist and misogynist and part of what you call this kind of new McCarthyism. So I want to I want to move to that for a moment. You know, in 2007, and this isn't the only reason you've been under attack, but in 2007 you did create the Arab and Muslim Ethnicities and Diaspora Studies program at uh, San Francisco State University. Um, and that is something that ended up provoking so much attack from the Israel lobby over the years. And again, obviously, this is just one of many things that you've been involved with that have provoked the Israel lobby. But this in particular, I mean, it it was just one attack after another, not just against you, but also your students by the Zionist lobby have been attacked. Um, I mean, it just on and on and on. My colleagues, colleagues, anybody who's, yeah, exactly. Everything. And I mean, what we've watched play out has been an uh, really just uh, unprecedented attack on academic freedom uh, when it comes to not just the issue of Palestine, but also this connects to the attacks on indigenous studies, on critical race theory, really just generally challenging colonialism and imperialism and Zionism, I mean, all of which are the same things. But uh, one of the more recent well-known incidents that took place was, of course, what took place, I believe it was last year when the uh, pressure got so extreme Zoom was actually lobbied and pressured successfully so at the time to censor a panel that you organized that included the Palestinian revolutionary uh, Leila Khalid, who we've actually had on this program before. But I guess, you know, my question to bringing all that up is to ask you, you know, why do you think that your creation of this program at the university was seen as so threatening? And how is it connected to this sort of broader imperialist attack on anything in academia that challenges colonialism? Yeah, thank you, Rani. This is this is this is a great question. We can go for a long, long time, but I will mention <laughs> a few points and yeah. uh, thinking that maybe we can expand on them today or maybe some other time. Uh, first, I I really think that we we kind of like and and you know this, but for your viewers and uh, listeners, it's really important to remember that it, the United States has always been involved in crushing the narratives, in crushing the people, the indigenous people of the lands, uh, kidnapping and enslaving African people, engaged in the Chinese Exclusion Exclusion Act, in the Palmer Raids, in the deportation of anarchists and communists in the 30s, in uh, in the Second World War, uh, in, in incarcerating and imprisoning, in, they call them internment, but we really call them concentration camps of the Japanese, of 110,000 Japanese, Japanese uh, Americans, and and Japanese people from Latin America, and they the act was called enemy alien. I mean, so we should, we should really remember that in the fifties there was McCarthyism to kind of target anybody who has different opinions and and than than anybody else and basically label them. And what what McCarthyism did is isolate people and uh, uh, sh- uh, shut them down and uh, deny them their careers. So people were deprived of their livelihood. Uh, people were uh, uh, told to inform on each other. So they become collaborators 
collaborators with the powers that be. Uh, people had to write, for example, under assumed names. Many writers have done so. Uh, there is a book by uh, the uh, former editor of The Nation, uh, Nanaveski, which is called Naming Names. He actually talks about the, the folks who collaborated and the folks who resisted as well. And so there is always, there is collaboration and repression. And then in the 60s, we know that uh, it is uh, uh, the, the, the one, the couple of programs we know about, one is the Pentagon Papers, which was uh, released by um, uh, none other than Daniel Ellsberg. May he rest in power. He passed away last month, actually. And he was actually a strong, very good friend of Palestine. Many people do not even know about all these connections. And we had him uh, speak at the Palestine Solidarity Committee events in the in the 80s. He revealed the Pentagon Papers, the U.S. intervention in Vietnam, and the lies that the Pentagon, the U.S. government was telling. And then the other part of uh, aspect was the COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, which was a program that was revealed, actually, b due to activists going to a, a, a warehouse in uh, Pennsylvania, trying to find more evidence around Vietnam, and they stumbled upon this program by which the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover and Ron Cohen's and the others in the FBI were uh, had planned and they were implementing to assassinate and kill leaders of the Black Panther Party, of the Puerto Rican movement, the Chicano Chicana movement, of the American Indian movement. I mean, it's, it, it's um, incredible what they have done to silence any people who so this is, I think it's really important to think about this whole environment of repression and the ways in which this is a history. The history exists. The second aspect of it is that in the 60s, and I will start there, in the 60s, and which is why I ended up in San Francisco State, by the way, mm. in the 60s, there were many movements that rose against the Vietnam War, that rose against U.S. intervention, that could connected with the decolonized colonial movements in the third world connected with them and I'm talking and then including the very famous longest strike in the history of student movement the San Francisco state strike led by the black student union and the third world liberation front demanding a college of third world studies demanding the decolonization of the curriculum accountability of scholarship to the communities from whose lives we draw our knowledge and breaking the boundaries between the university and the community. And for me, this was, and so this was the, this was the place where this has started. So when I was invited to first give advice, and I did, I was at the, directing the Center for Arab American Studies at the University of Michigan Dearborn, I was I was very excited because I thought this wow this would be really great. We'll have multiple centers for uh, for Arab studies, Arab Muslim studies, Palestine studies, and so on. And uh, it might actually be able to decenter Americanness because the Michigan was Arab American. So I really wanted Arab diasporas, Arab ethnicities to kind of like not look at boundaries and not respect colonial boundaries. And so, and it was going to be, and they asked me, where do you want it to be? And I said, in the College of Ethnic Studies, of course, because that's where the college that led to the strike. So uh, the problem with the 60s, what, what happened, the problem with the right wing, with the powers that be, with white supremacists, with racists, with Zionists, and they're all coming together, Islamophobes, Orientalists. They, it's very, very interesting how much alliances is, for example, we, you know that, and I know you spoke about it a lot, Richard Spencer, one of the organizers of uh, Unite the Right uh, uh, rally in, uh, in uh, Charlottesville, said, I'm a white Zionist. To the yeah. TV. I mean, this is Yair uh, Netanyahu said that the worst thing actually to anybody is Antifa. They are as bad to, as bad for Israel. 
they're worse for Israel than the neo-Nazis. I mean, this is where, where these people come together. So the, the right wing actually had a problem because we had, in the 60s, there was a counter movement to challenge the narrative, to reinstate the, 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 the anti-colonial narrative, the narratives of the people, indigenous narratives. Come Reagan in 1980, there needed to be a reversal of that. So mm -hmm. you'll see now a ways of trying to actually, um, there is the deindustrialization, there is the neoliberal um, rise and so on, and there is the privatization of the academic institutions. So all of these things come together to uh, try to stop the, 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 all the stuff that has happened in the 60s that we were so inspired by. So my program is, is inspired by all of this stuff and tries to, and not tries to, does actually. Our program is called, Ahmed is called Justice-Centered Knowledge Production Program. It's definition, which has been approved and passed in my university and the California State University, which is the parent, the 23 campuses, the largest public system. Uh, in the United States, and I would say public in parentheses because there is more privatization going on, which is mm -hmm. leading to these attacks. And uh, and we, we, we really are interested in kind of like thinking about, okay, so when we tell the stories of 68, the strike of the students and so on, there were Palestinian students, there were Arab students. The organization of Arab students actually was very involved, very active in Berkeley, and, and this was one of the main organizations that's active in the U.S. Now, uh, they're not written into the history of the strike. Why did that happen? How did that happen? So that was one of the things that was very interesting and, and I felt necessary for, for me to do in this program. And also, we, uh, we, the, our, the minds of the people who were in the college at the time and the students who were organizing, the very student, the historical General Union of Palestine students, uh, Student Council for Intertribal Nation, Black Student Union, League of uh, Filipino Students, uh, RARASA, all these groups, all these student groups, they also were very much interested in making sure that we do not allow the histories to be hidden, to be erased. Mm -hmm. I mean, so it was really about talking about challenging colonial narratives, challenging Eurocentric education, decolonizing the curriculum. And I went the same. I, so we were going to be the fifth department in the College of Ethics Studies. On that, on that basis, I left my job in Michigan and I went to San Francisco State. Lo and behold, designers are not very happy with that, obviously. So one of the things that they tried to do, they, they were trying already to attack. They've targeted uh, Palestinian students, they targeted Muslim students, students of color, indigenous students. There has been history at San Francisco State, which is supposed to be like one of the more progressive sites and so on. But the history of the university is not really honorable as far as our struggles are concerned. And it gets even worse when it comes to Palestine because Palestine kept, gets treated as an exceptional case. It's not exceptional by the Zionists because the Zionist Israel presents Israel and the United States as exceptional miracles, right? So in mm -hmm. that sense, then we get put in a very different uh, uh, let's say, corner, to be attacked. And then when you think you can attack the Palestinians and pass what you want, you can attack everybody else. So you can actually scratch black studies. You can use the tactics that you use to cancel Palestinian classes or Ahmed classes for, against uh, Africana, against uh, black uh, uh, center, against uh, other students of color, against women and gender studies and so on. Because once you have the laws, the bureaucracy on the books, you can implement it everywhere. And this is what I call curating facts on the ground. And this is exactly mm -hmm. Israeli occupation 
and any repressive power does. So they, so that, that, so then I'm also one of the outspoken Palestinians, and there is a whole bunch of us. I'm not the only one, but um, and I, but I think for us, one, what, what really makes maybe our case is a spe- little bit more specific, not exceptional, but more specific is that one is that uh, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm not, I refuse to. I refuse to shut up. Okay. <laughs> I, I refuse to shut up. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> it's really important to keep, I believe speaking truth to power is really, really important. And I believe this is our mission as educators. We are supposed to be teaching the truth. We are supposed to challenge dominant discourses and so on. Secondly, and I think this is really important, is that this San Francisco State historically has been known for the strike. So the university administration would like to retain the image of the strike to put the flag, to raise money, to do all of the stuff, but as long as it is window dressing. And many of the strikers, many of the leading strikers, like the late uh, Terry Collin, the late uh, Margaret Leahy, uh, the late uh, Damira uh, Ahmed, all of, all of the strikers who led the strike in 1968 came to embrace us. And they kept saying that Ahmed is the program that realizes our vision. It has to be indigenous and Palestine. But for the Zionists, it is very serious problem to have this stuff legitimized in the curriculum. Because if it is legitimized in the curriculum, it is not only about shutting down a permit for a demonstration or canceling a speech by um, uh, on CNN or what. I'm, and I'm not minimizing. I think they're really important. But when you're talking about making it part and parcel of the curriculum, and especially with our classes, they're all general education, which means students from all university can take from business, from computer science, from um, uh, engineering, from agriculture, from uh, uh, farming, from uh, um, hospitality. They take the class. They say that you need to take some of the classes as electives. They come to take the class and they learn. And they learn about us and they learn about the world. They learn about comparative struggles as well. So it is very dangerous. All because it is to silence Palestine, it is very dangerous not to let people learn about Palestine. And it's very dangerous to make the connections because also the interest of the white supremacists, I mean, let's think about DeSantis in Florida and the mm. so-called against, against woke acts and so on, to erase the history of the U.S., the, the terrible, horrible, violent history of the U.S., and, and actually erase it altogether. And so we do comparative studies as well. So on all these levels, Ahmed needed to be shut down. An Mm -hmm. Ahmed program needed to be dismantled, even though I do have a clear uh, contract with the university that I signed and the university has signed on the basis of which I will create the program. I will have faculty members. uh, We will have funding. We will grow it to a department. It's not just a program, a department. The more attacks, Zion's attacks, and the more privatization the university went to, and the more right-wing the leadership of the university became to the point that most of the leaders of the university actually were trained in Zionism, were trained in Zionism by the Anti-Defamation League, mm-hmm. by the Jewish Community Relations Council in collaboration with Hillel and other very well-known organizations that also have been called racist, uh, Islamophobes, uh, uh, anti-Palestinian, mm-hmm. anti-Arab, not just by us. They've been called by many groups, including Jewish groups, including civil rights groups, and so on. So this is where it's coming to. They need to crush the program in order to prevent us from even realizing that what we have already achieved. So just like in the 80s, Reagan and company are trying to roll back 
the impact of the 60s. Now, what, they're, what the university administration and its uh, designers that it's in complicity with and the white supremacists, they're trying to basically crush the program and completely erase it from existence. Every single year, we feel and see more and more attempts, canceling a class. During COVID, Palestine Center classes were canceled. And I said, you are creating facts on the ground. And they said there is a budget. And it, it turned out that there was a surplus of money. And the university president received 10% raise. So <laughs> there is no money. And you're firing lecturers. Why is that happening? So this is what's been going on. So we've been fighting it. And of course, it's not allowed. The, I, I would say the last point, I'll comment on your question about the open classroom that my colleague, Dr. Tomomi Kenakawa of Women and Gender Studies and I co-organized. Uh, called Whose Narratives, Gender, Justice and Resistance, a conversation with Leila Khaled. And we invited the Ronika Sreels from South Africa, Laura Whitehorn, uh, who's anti-Zionist, anti uh, former uh, political prisoner in the U.S., spent 14 years in prison, Seiko Odinga, who spent 30, over 30 years in prison, uh, leader of the Black Liberation Army, and uh, Rula Abu Dahao, the, uh, um, uh, the acting director of the Institute for Women's Studies at Birzeit. And actually, we wanted to talk about the whole question of narratives and histories, because I had written about Leila, I had analyzed her story and so on and so forth. So we were actually bringing our students to learn about that. And it was impossible for the Zionists to allow uh, somebody like Leila Khaled to come off and speak as a 70, at the time, 76-year-old grandmother who's actually speaking as a person. She's telling the story. She's arguing. She's debating because they needed to freeze her in everybody's memory as an evil uh, person who's intent on killing, and even our university president, wrote a, several statements, including, I condemn the glorification oh. of, the, of the murder of civilians. And we, and both Dr. Kinakawa and I said, well, why, don't you, why didn't you even ask us once to come and meet with you and say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this class? But we do know now that the Zionist uh, movement, 19,000 uh, messages were sent from wow. an app called ACT IL, yeah. Uh, to uh, social media. We know that the Lawfare Project, which uh, which uh, spearheaded this campaign against us, actually contacted the U.S. government. Remember, Trump was in power. So they sent to the Department of Education, Betty DeVos, big right-winger. Her brother is one black uh, uh, water. Eric Prince. Great. Eric Prince, head of black exactly. water. Yeah. Exactly. And then and uh, to the Attorney General, to uh, Homeland Security, a congressman from Colorado, actually right wing, demanded that we be investigated. We were accused of uh, engaging in material support for terrorism. And our own provost, academic provost, sent us an email saying that uh, some people tell us that you, are, you might be involved in things that are violating of the law. You might face imprisonment or fines. You need to find your own lawyers. So we wrote back to her and we said, where are the lawyers of the university who are supposed to be protecting us? And she said, no, it's you're on your own. And why are you threatening us with imprisonment? And uh, our argument was, uh, so we actually kept trying to hold the class, but we kept, 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 we kept getting shut down, just as wow. if we were on a, on like running from one checkpoint to the other, like a, 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 a patient, an injured person, you're trying to get them to the hospital, in one, and then there is one Israeli checkpoint after the other. And one of the arguments I kept asking the university and the AT, okay, so Zoom is shutting us. You're supposed to provide us with another venue. It's a classroom. We're yes. teaching a classroom. If a pipe breaks in the classroom, 
if a, our gas leak or electricity goes off, you are supposed to provide us with another venue. We're not the ones who are supposed to. It's not up to the instructors to actually provide another venue. Our job is to teach. This breaks, it's your job. There is a very clear uh, division of labor in the university. Mm -hmm. You did not provide us with that. So what we ended up doing is that uh, Dr. Kinakawa and I filed grievances against the university administration, and we won for violation of our academic freedom. We won the grievances, both of them very, very clearly, and the grievances were heard by a faculty hearing panel and uh, in a randomly selected group of faculty whom we did not know. We don't, they get chosen by lottery between the, the university and the union. And they heard and they demanded or that the university apologize to us for everything they caused us. Uh, they actually named the university collaboration with the Lawfare Project, the Zionist group. They named it in their own ruling. Mm -hmm. And they the, ordered the university to set up the classrooms and make them happen, whether they make them happen however they want to make them happen, on Zoom or whatever. It's not the job of the university to do so. Unfortunately, the university president came up with this. First of all, she vetoed the grievances, which is total violation of faculty governance and total disregard of uh, the claims that we're, you know, that, that you know how our countries are always called anti-democratic, right? But yeah. the university president <laughs> felt that she has the right to, um, to impose a dr draconian decision, violate and veto, and disregard the labor, not only our own labor of doing so and our union, but also these, these three panels that came together and passed the resolution. And in, in, in one of the, she wrote a, several statements. One of them was published in the J Weekly, which is run by the Jewish Community Relations Council, a big Zionist uh, group that's targeting us, that has been targeting us from day one, right? From, from, from 2006, 2007, I think. And uh, said that uh, in, in one of her statements, uh, she said that uh, Zionism and Zoom is free to have its own terms of service. Mm -hmm. And we said, what do you mean? Don't you have a contract with Zoom? Zoom serves over 400,000 uh, contract with the California State University. If you have a service and Zoom is supposed to be providing you with the venues to hold classes, you can hold Zoom accountable. Why are you letting them off the hook? But this also points to, not only to the university president's anti-Palestinian, Islamophobic, Orientalist, and racist, outright racist um, uh, attitudes that are being reflected in her in her actions, but it also points to the collaboration between the university and private big tech companies right. that are basically also ruining, I mean, San Francisco and the Bay Area and so on. This is where it is at and this is where the Zionist power is also being implemented. I mean, it's really stunning what took place because they blatantly censored this panel. I mean, it's not like Leila Khaled was even in the country. It was a virtual panel. Uh, and this is a historical figure. People can think what they want about her. But I think at the end of the day, what this comes down to is this need, as you were explaining before, to make sure as few people as possible, whether it's in academia or outside of it, are exposed to the narratives from our part of the world. Because if they were exposed to those narratives, it would be a no-brainer. One side is the oppressed and one side's the oppressor. It's no, actually not that difficult. Uh, so if you're the side doing all the oppressing, you of course need to make sure nobody hears from the other side. Um, and I'm so happy that ultimately you all were victorious in the long run. Of course, the victory there did not get the attention 
uh, as much attention as, as the initial act of censorship. And you've repeatedly uh, been victorious over and over against these people. But I mean, at the end of the day, part of all of these attacks isn't just to isn't just because the pro-Israel lobby, the anti-Palestinian fanatics, the imperialists, isn't just because they're constantly desperate to shut you and others down. It's also like to make an example and to wear you down. So other people look around and see, wow, you actually have a lot to risk and lose uh, if you speak out on these issues or if you participate in this part of academia. So maybe it's just better not to. Um, yes, um, you're totally, you're, you're, you're absolutely uh, right in that, in the sense, I mean, it is, to make an example and yeah. to tell other people that uh, a you don't really want to go through the toll mm-hmm. that people like me like other others of my colleagues i mean there is if we start with the list we will not stop how many people have been targeted how many people lost their jobs how many people were censored but we also need to also think about the indivis- invisible censorship or the self censorship that people it's imposed upon people or people impose upon themselves because their livelihoods are at stake. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the rest, you can access it by becoming a Breakthrough News member at patreon.com slash breakthrough news.